This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Death Spiral, a game in segment form. Mythic level gaming. And my latest raid on Powell's City of Books. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Ken and Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something to either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of cool ranch Doritos, or perhaps of leftover Halloween payday bars tell us that we've entered the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And where, you may ask, are the benevolent features of Peter Frampton coming alive? They have been replaced by some sort of album from the back of the record store, something with large gothic fracture fonts and lots of umlauts, because we are in the death spiral. Robin, tell us. Why we have brought a death spiral into what began as a pleasant place for us to kill orcs without mom caring. Well, folks, uh, you may be aware of the fact that there are uh, games that you can acquire or even games that you can get for free. You may also be aware, dear listener, that there are podcasts. But have you ever gotten a free game as part of a podcast? Not like some additional PDF thing or something that I would actually have to write. But verbally, here in this podcast, I am going to lay a new game design upon you, which you can all play. And that game, as expertly foreshadowed by Ken, is called Death Spiral. And this is something that I uh, made up on the spot at the Kraken. And it is the kind of game that results when you make uh, up something on the spot. And therefore, in addition to an ordinary deck of playing cards... I knew there was an umlaut in it, though. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Where would the umlaut go? Over the Over Over the the eye. Oh, the eye. Yeah. And so, uh, like spinal tap. You need your ordinary, uh, deck of playing cards, and, uh, you also require a- an impressionable group of players who are willing to go along with you, uh, for a ride. So, uh, this is a very loosey goosey story game that you as GM will have a-, a fair amount of control over. So, if you have a group of people who do not know or trust you, you may not have uh, very many takers for this, but if people know you're a good GM or have heard that you're a good GM and believe it, and want to sit down and play a quick game that is 
not especially taxing and not particularly uh, rules heavy and are willing to go with you on a ride, uh, that is all you need in order to play Death Spiral. Now, of course, I am in that position at a game convention like Kraken, and uh, you may be as well if you are known as a, uh, a rousing GM, but also just maybe... Which in- surely you must be, having listened to Ken and Robin talk about stuff low these many years and absorbed all of our excellent advice. Yes. Uh, you may even have some of the upcoming Ken and Robin merchandise to prove that you are doubtless an expert GM. Nicely foreshadowed, Robin. Uh, you got to fit your self-promotion in with your uh, your content. That's, uh, that's crucial to any podcast. So, uh, Death Spiral basically is a way of uh, doing one of those whole bunch of characters thrown into a situation and then they slowly get killed through the course of the uh, storyline kind of story. And so the idea here is that you have a group of people who are either going to be uh, content to get killed and sit around and keep watching or uh, will be happy enough to get killed and go off and and do something else. Um, The group that I played with, everybody happily sat there and uh, even as some of them got uh, killed off uh, early on, uh, you uh, may not uh, have uh, such a tolerant group, but that's not your objective. Your objective is to um, entertain a, a group of people for like a two to three hour period. So the next step is to think of a sort of story in which that happens. Ken, uh, do you have examples uh, that come to mind of this uh, tried and true narrative formula? Well, the classic example, of course, is the haunted house or the last uh, man standing sort of slasher movie where there's a bunch of people. They go into a place of ultimate danger and bad things happen. And as the bad things happen, the tension and lack of uh, forethought that have led them into the haunted house or other uh, uh, campground of death continue and escalate as people uh, scream at each other and don't solve the problem. Zombie movies are another classic example of this sort of uh, internal and external death spiral. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah. Um, so you, and, and you got your creature in the confined environment. So that's uh, Alien and all of the movies that copycatted from Alien. Uh, but what I did in this instance was I wholesale ripped off a, uh, I think it's a 1939 or 1940 film starring Boris Karloff, which is The Man They Could Not Hang. Uh, and the uh, premise of this, the whole film is not set up this way. It's mostly the um, uh, the second act, is that uh, Boris Karloff is a uh, intrepid scientist who uh, whose research assistant agrees to be temporarily killed so he can then bring him back from the dead, uh, achieving uh, the secret of immortality. And and they think grad students have it bad now. Yes, um, but the uh, the nosy uh, uh, nurse slash uh, girlfriend of the experimental subject uh, in the film decides to go ruin everything and goes to the cops. And because the cops barge in, he's unable to complete the experiment. And in a speedy 30s movie fashion, before we know it, he's been sentenced to uh, die uh, by hanging, of course. And uh, and that's just the uh, not even the whole first act. It's a zippy 30s movie thing. Before you know it, everybody who the Karloff character blames for having uh, ushered in his uh, uh, untimely death, are invited, supposedly by the DA, to his manor. None of them think this is fishy until the DA shows up and goes, hey, who invited us all here? And then, of course, it turns (laughs) out to be an elaborately uh, created death trap in which he can then start bumping off uh, the people he wants vengeance against uh, one by one. So the uh, game version of this starts with that scene and then gives you all that other stuff as backstory. What you then do is you go around the table and you ask, uh, in this instance, what is your relationship to the case? Why did you participate 
uh, what role did you have in the uh, execution of the, the Karloff character? And then everybody specifies, you assign them a name, a suitable period name, and then you go uh, around the table and bing, everybody's got their characters in as uh, short a period as you could uh, possibly imagine. Now, in zippy 30s fashion. In zippy 30s fashion. Now, what you could also do is, uh, you know, if you're doing some other sort of uh, setup, like the sleepaway camp, it's like, well, what uh, uh, teenage uh, cliche are you? And you go around the table and assign names. Or, you know, you're a bunch of gangsters who have just gotten the loot and now uh, uh, somebody has stolen the loot and you all start bumping each other off. You know, what role did you have in the heist? That sort of thing. So you give every player a way into the genre because you're asking them to create a genre-specific character. And also you're giving them a sense of creativity over their character so that they um, have that connection. They don't just feel that there's a, a pre-gen. And so then you just basically start to uh, describe the action. And uh, with your deck of playing cards, you uh, mention to them that if you draw a spade in order to, you know, you have your deck of playing cards. If you draw a spade, that's bad. And uh, the best cards are the face cards, the uh, low uh, numbers are uh, are bad, and then in the middle, what happens is what would happen if this was a movie. So at this point, the uh, uh, players all sort of dug in and started working their way through the, uh, the problem, and whenever they would uh, try something, I would draw a card and Sometimes the uh, the cards would come up and oh no this this really bad thing has happened and uh, and you get uh, killed or wounded or, or what have you and then you just sort of play out the consequences of this you have to have in mind a set of possible ways for this to escalate uh, if you're in a com uh, and ideally you want everybody in a confined space and so you have to have ways for the confinedness of the story to continue if they do manage to uh, break out of the place. And uh, other than that, you just uh, uh, keep going. And then at about a third of the way through, you say, well, now any black card is bad news. And that, uh, if they haven't heard this segment, don't know the way that the rules work, there's a, a shudder, a veritable shudder, shudder of, uh, of unnerved anticipation. And then, of course, as you draw even closer to the conclusion, and there's still enough people left, then it's like, oh, everything but hearts is bad now. And so you uh, there's a really quick sort of intuitive way of understanding how the uh, the odds have shifted against them. And then you just sort of uh, uh, go with the flow of the cards and uh, respond to their uh, improvised moves. And, you know, ideally you want to sort of engineer it so that there's one survivor uh, or by the time you've got one survivor or there's an obvious breakout, uh, you have probably concluded your two to three hours of uh, death spiral. So uh, there you go, folks. This is your new game, Death Spiral, that you can uh, play uh, as you want and as you will. Okay. When you played it, uh, when you play tested it, I guess I should say, at the Kraken, first of all, I guess the the question is, did uh, the Kraken people were all there to, to love Robin Laws, Was there, so there was no pushback, there was no... Um, well, I didn't say that I did that. There was none of the sort of, uh, not rules lawyering, but I guess scene lawyering that you can get in a more normal, uh, kill them all sort of a, a setting, right? Right. And that's why I was uh, describing earlier on why you have to, this assumes buy-in because, uh, that you are either you or everybody has decided to, to, uh, accept this and go with the flow so that if you know you're with a group of people and one of them is going to start quibbling, 
Uh, it's like, well, I that's only a seven. I shouldn't get killed on a seven. Uh, then you've got the a group of people that it's not going to uh, work. Or I can't from, be killed by the bats because, um, you know, I was underneath the overhang. Right. And and you should definitely, you know, if you do get a card that should be favorable to the characters, you have to play fair within that very broad structure. Yeah. And, and, you know, nothing bad can happen when they get a positive card. But when they get a card in the middle and it kills them, it's like, well, this is the part in the movie where your character would die. So guess what? And that, in fact, did happen with one of the... It worked out really well, actually, because one of the players was the super organized, uh, analytical, uh, take charge sort of character who then started instructing everybody else as to what to do as to come up with a perfect plan to escape from the room. And so when a mid-level card came up, boom, that character died. Yeah. And it was early on in this situation because that's a total, uh, you know, horror movie thing to do is that the uh, competent guy that everybody is relying on uh, gets killed early on. And it, it, it uh, scares everybody, uh, which is supposed to actually happen in the, in the pilot of Lost, for example. The Matthew Fox character was supposed to uh, be super competent and then die midway through. But uh, they, they didn't take that option. But you want to bet that at Kraken, Deathspiral took that option and uh, killed off uh, that uh, that character. Um, and this is the one I was mentioning before, that afterwards we played for about three hours, then we spent another hour talking about how it went and what I did and what tips you could get from it. And the, the same player um, also felt that he made a great uh, breakthrough because as part of the action at one point I described that uh, the Karloff character was releasing uh, mustard gas into the room. And... Only and he saved until the until the post game seminar all of his quibbles about the way that mustard gas. Well, uh, oh, that's good. So, there we go. That's a personal yeah. breakthrough. That was great. So congratulations, Aristo. You, uh, I, I was uh, proud to be part of that uh, epiphany. You, you defeated your demon in an entirely different story game, run on a metaphysical level. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. Speaking of the metaphysical level, is there a metaphysical component to this, or is it really just you're in a zombie movie, you're in a haunted house movie? You're in a, a Reservoir Dogs movie, um, and uh, so is, is there any more to it? Is it just a matter of you get what you bring in? So if you want to role play, you can do that. So if you want it to be about anything on a larger level, that's sort of up to everyone to establish. By, by metaphysical, do you mean thematic? I mean thematic. I mean anything that is a larger reason to play this than um, run around in the woods when and do flashlight wars, right? The theme, obviously, is a theme of survival and who survives and, and who doesn't uh, in a uh, world where there's some degree of randomness and, and entropy. And so the question then uh, becomes ultimately whether the uh, character who survives, does that feel fitting in the way that the final girl surviving a slasher movie is always meant to feel fitting? Does that say something about the uh, traits needed to uh, uh, prosper uh, or... Uh, is it all just sort of randomness and, and entropy? And in this case, certainly, it did feel like the character who got away uh, was the character who ought to have got away until, of course, the doomed coda at the end. Right. Because uh, everybody loves a doomed coda, uh, especially all the other the other seven uh, players who sat around the table and all got killed off. They want to know that the uh, trouble isn't over for the survivor. Right. And then you still had an ace of spades in the deck or whatever. Yes. And so I guess that leads, uh, my mention of the, uh, reservoir dog setup leads to the question of, is there a, a, uh, possibility in this game 
of character on character fratricide or is that a yes i would say absolutely sure um and you can handle that mechanically just by drawing Mm -hmm. cards and uh you uh you have to uh have your uh look up the the suit order preference in order to do Mm -hmm. that but we can all do that we have the internet so that's uh something that in this case everybody was working together and nobody really turned on each other although of course they were invited to turn on each other and there was some thought there was, a, there was a discussion at one point as to whether they should sacrifice one of their own as requested, which is always fun. Uh, but they, they elected not to. But in, in, a more res- in a more Tarantino version, yes, of course, some of the people who get killed will be killed by going after each other. And you could maybe start by saying two cards in a row that are the same card, like two sevens in a row. That means the guy who draws the second seven gets the option to try and kill the first guy, right? And then it's like cards one apart you know so you first guy draws a seven you draw a six now you can be in the same room and kill each other right. and then you sort of make that the uh fratricide spiral to go with the other the regular death spiral of the cards does that uh possibility maybe let it it takes a little of the onus off being the the jerk who decides to kill someone is oh the card made me kill you i'm sorry fred right um, now, that does uh, impose the danger of having two paragraphs of rules but i, I suppose here in our, our verbal game, uh, we can certainly do that. Yeah. And then the question of, uh, as you say, card order maybe is how you resolve it. Or maybe it's just, no, it's the second card. That's the person who's the active player. And so, you know. Yeah. I, if, if, they're ma- if they're matching cards, yeah, I guess the one with the higher suit order is the, yeah. that's, that's the easiest way to go. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, maybe you, since you've got spades at one end uh, of ultimate death and hearts at the end of ultimate survival, it's the guy... Yeah, you, you could invent your own suit. You order. could invent your own suit order to thematically match the rest of of the death spiral suit orders. This is like a third paragraph. I've obviously overcomplicated this. Welcome to Gumshoe Design Process, yes. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, before before we wind up with addition wars for death spiral, let's uh, head on out of this segment and into the next one. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse... History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. Patreon backer Reinier Dobbelman asks Ken and Robin, Is mythic level gaming different enough from grit level gaming to require different mechanics or other adaptations? And if so, what adaptations would you recommend? Robin? So the uh, point in any game, there has to be some level of conflict. 
And I think the thing that uh, defines a mythic level game where you're playing uh, gods and demigods is to uh, work out what the constraints on their uh, abilities are, uh, especially when they come into conflict with one another, and then uh, see what the uh, at what level the, the conflict takes place. Now, one way to do that is play Nobilis. Yeah. Uh, in which case our work here is done. Go get Nobilis. But uh, Reiner's playing with his uh, young son, and I get the sense from the uh, uh, surrounding context in his uh, message that they are looking for more of a slam bang thunderbolts versus uh, uh, sea gods sort of situation. So you want to work out basically what all the characters can do and what they can just do by fiat so that uh, as gods, uh, you may determine that, uh, you know, you can, you know, grant a gift to a mortal that will uh, make him more powerful than other mortals uh, all the way up to, you know, you can flatten a city if you want. And so you want to sort of have constraints on that because the higher you can go in your divineness, uh, you know, soon you'll have all the cities will be flat. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, that's your Trojan War situation, people. Yeah. And, and you know, that wasn't just uh, Zeus snapping his fingers. That was Zeus working through people. And so I think probably a pretty good model. Is and it took the, 10 years. Yeah. Is the Olympian gods who can, they can do powerful things, but they still mostly have to work through people, right? It's it's easy enough to disguise yourself as a swan and go in order to go sexually harass someone. But if, if people, some people can even do it without disguising themselves as a swan, that's well, how easy it is. That's true. Yes, it's the disguising <laughs> as a swan part that's magical. But the big stuff, like uh, you know, destroying a city, that's going to require you to to, to work uh, through other people, so that uh, your influence over other people is what defines what you're doing. And then occasionally, of course, you might have sort of a parallel battle where you're duking it out with the uh, whatever the god of Troy was. I, I forget exactly which god was on which side in that one. Uh, but you might just, you know, there might be a parallel scene where you're actually physically battling your uh, opposing god as your two armies uh, fight each other. Ares, for example, was on the side of Troy. There you go. Um, uh, the other thing that you can look at is uh, the good old Amber Diceless role-playing system in which the only really important question is, can you beat the other god, not what can you do to poor schmucky mortals? Uh, and so they had the various, um, uh, uh I, f I forget what the specific stats were like, uh, strength and battle and, um, uh, romance. And I forget what they were, but there was the four or five things you could be good at. And because of the point economy, no one could be best at everything. So you had to sort of sort out. So sure, Ares in theory could beat up Aphrodite in battle, but her, uh, social skills, shall we say, for a family podcast are so high that it doesn't matter because she can, beat him if she takes the the um uh, battle off the field and into the boudoir so there's uh that sort of interaction of uh the sort of the strategy of where do you go after your your godly rival and if mortals dare to intervene they can pretty easily be dealt with as a hand wave unless they're like such heroes as achilles or diomedes who actually you know uh can uh, injure Ares on the battlefield and that becomes you know, a big giant moment for Diomedes. So you have maybe three layers of people. There's the sort of common folk, the general ruck of worshiper who you can mess with. You could have an earthquake that overthrows their city, you know, in a day and no one cares because it's an offstage city. You have a hero 
who's someone who can actually face the gods on maybe the one area where the hero is super. And then you have other gods who are a credible threat in almost any sort of circumstance. And that can be done with your ongoing system just by changing the level of resolution. So in theory, regardless of what you're playing, let's say you're playing D&D um, uh, or a standard F20 game, suddenly, if you're gods, even if you're a first-level god, that just means that you are dealing with these sort of low-level uh, problems, automatic success. Or if you're up at seventh level or something like that, maybe a hero can have up to third level effect so that they could maybe affect you, but it's probably not going to happen unless they've got a really great magic item or a really serious bonus going on, something in that order. And that was one of the design challenges in HeroQuest, uh, originally designed for Glorantha and then genericized and now redone for Glorantha yet again, uh, in which the the challenge was that uh, Greg Stafford's stories about Glorantha uh, could cover anybody from a you know the most low, lowly of mortals, a stick picker out in the wastes, to uh, an actual sort of uh, hero who is so infused with the qualities of their god that they might as well be that god, like and Hercules. So, yeah, and so the uh, system scales up and can scale up sort of infinitely, and uh, has a way of dealing so that if you're uh, you know if you have three masteries as they're called in combat, you can be uh, essentially sure that you can take care of anybody without a mastery or with only one mastery, but someone with four masteries is still going to be uh, considerably better than you. And that uh, theoretically you can just keep on doing that in that game forever. So if you want a generic rule set that allows you to have something a little crunchier, although still very much a, a story game uh, to guide your sort of divine battles, that's uh, uh, one of the original uh, design purposes of, of that game was exactly to uh, to do that and allow you to have any number of levels between uh, people. Here we're just positing mortals, heroes, and gods, but you could certainly you know have as many gradations of that um, as you wanted. And I did a similar thing with uh, Chad Undercuffler's, um, uh, I guess it was a fudge variant at the time, uh, Truth and Justice, which means you could probably do it with Fate. In his game, there were already... Uh, mortals and supers, and I just added a level of ultras on top of that as the characters progressed into the sort of Superman, Green Lantern, legendary level. And again, it became a question of unless you are, uh, you know, good or great at your thing, you know, the top of the fate bar, or is it great or excellent, whatever it is, the very top ones of the fate bar, you are just not going to win against the guy in the category ahead of you. And each category scaled that way so that the categories were true amongst themselves. There was a band in which there were genuine challenges and the band in which, no, if you're looking to move the moon, you can't do that. You have to wait for an ultra to come along and do that. And on the other side of the, the equation, the question is, what do gods want, right? In your uh, adopted mythology, is the uh, is the goal of each god to uh, alter the cosmos so that if they're the fire god, the only thing in the cosmos is fire? Or, you know, if you're the storm god, the only thing that exists is storm. Or are, is your job to do your part to maintain the balance between storm and fire, in which case you only go, uh, as the fire god, you only go and attack the storm god if he's encroaching on your territory and raining on your uh, your lava or whatever it is. And Or are you like the Greek gods in that you embody all of these cosmic principles, but really... Uh, 
mostly you care about uh, is, uh, stepping out on your wife, right. uh, getting revenge on your husband for stepping out it's on It's like you. a CW show. It doesn't matter what it's ostensibly about. It's actually about who's shacking up with who. Yes. Or, you know, who's <laughs> which mortal is foolish enough to try and choose between you. Uh, you know, if you are interfering in the lives of mortals, is it just because you are bored and they're your playthings, as kind of seems to be the sense in, in the Greek uh, myths? Or is it because you need to work f- through them to maintain the cosmic balance or to upset the cosmic balance? Or perhaps there's, you know, and the typical thing is your, there's your pantheon of sympathetic gods. Their goal is to, uh, you know, maintain the balance. And then there's uh, the evil uh, suppressed uh, gods from the underworld, and they're going to try and come out and, and uh, upset the cosmic balance. And so the Titans. Right. And so, the you know, not only what can you do, but what do you want that makes you do things is, is another big question to establish at the beginning of a, a mythic level game. And finally, I suppose the other question for a mythic level game is to what extent are mortals important to you? Um, as we've Im- implied, you know, the Greek gods basically, if they're not uh, trying to sleep with mortals, they're trying to use mortals to advance their agendas on Earth. Uh, in other games, mortals might simply be, you know, counters, you know, the classic, uh, sort of, uh, unknown worlds version of, of hell and heaven that are just counting up souls like chips on a poker table. So the, the mortals might merely be, you know, uh, tokens. There might be a system in which mortals, are a commodity that actually feeds you, either their worship does or their uh, human sacrifice. Like if you're a bunch of Aztec gods um, uh, being uh, fed by by uh, blood and souls uh, or Ariok, good old Ariok. Uh, so there's a question of what is the role of the of this mortal level? Is it just the you know understructure of the ecosystem and you can ignore it, or is it a a valuable commodity in and of itself, or is it? as you say, something whose desires have to be taken into account because otherwise they'll just leave you for the hot, sexy new god from the Middle East somewhere. Um, And a fun way to upend that is it may be that as the gods, you are annoyed by the way that human belief keeps changing you. (laughs) That (laughs) it's, it's darned annoying that all of a sudden Mithras gets to hang out at your party because all of a sudden everybody started worshiping Mithras and uh, you don't know where Mithras uh, came from. He's not part of your family. He's not part of your intrigue. And, oh, wait a minute. I, I Dionysus, uh, the god of uh, the power and darkness of pleasure, I'm just turning into dumb, fat old Bacchus. I want to go back to being Dionysus. I don't want to be just some old schlubby wine god. And so the gods uh, then decide to uh, sever their connection to people. Uh, you know, you try to bring about the enlightenment so that uh, they start to think of you as just sort of mythical figures. And then you can you know, go back to being your own selves and not uh, uh, be altered by uh, changes in human belief. Or you could, you know, go down and uh, try to, uh, you know, because it turns out to be very difficult to get people to believe what you want them to believe about you. Even when you show up as Dionysus, it turns out, well, we we kind of like Bacchus better. Yeah, he's, he's a party. Yeah, so that, that might be a fun... Less cannibalism at this party. Yes, so that's not uh, a uh, a starting level version of that game, but it, it might be a fun sort of uh, variant on that whole genre where you're trying to find the mechanism to uh, sever the relationship between gods and men so that gods can... You know, maybe you'll dwindle a little, but you'll dwindle as Dionysus, not as uh, um, Bacchus. And on that note, I guess uh, before we dwindle away, it's time for another life-sustaining commercial message.
Hey Ken, what happens when demons lodge in your memories? Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by patrons exactly like... Nancy Feldman. Daniel Dunlap. Noel Warford. Corey Welch. And Ross Ireland. Those moans and groans that you hear are emanated, my friends, from Ken's bookshelf, the item of furniture, or should I say many items in furniture, on which Ken stores his beloved library. And why are they moaning and groaning people? Well, Ken, you were recently in Portland for the uh, H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, which means... Which means that I was recently in Powell's City of Books, uh, Portland's jewel of a bookstore a uh, reason of itself to go to to go to the rose city and enjoy yourself some rain and some coffee and also uh go ye to powell's books which may i remind you charges no sales tax because oregon still has no sales tax i have no idea how they stay in business but it's not up to me to be oregon and um uh, which ships your books to you for a very reasonable rate so uh, feel free, go bananas. Uh, I, I terrified poor Keith Baker, actually, when I stepped out of uh, Powell's to meet him, and I was carrying only a small paper bag with two books in it, and he thought that perhaps I'd been killed and replaced by an imposter. But no, those were just your plain books. Those were just the walking around books. All the other books <laughs> were winging their way back to Ken's bookshelf. And I take it they, they have now so wung themselves? They have wung. They are they are scattered across the land. Some of them are still downstairs. One or two of them may have even been shelved. Uh, but I will attempt to recollect their contents for this most valuable of segments. Uh, well, well, we'll start with some of the respectable ones and uh, get to the ones with the uh, suspiciously small margins near the end. So let's start with uh, Dracula's Brothers, The Drums of Dracula, and Challenge to Dracula by Robert Laurie. These sound like fiction books. They are. They are indeed. Robert Laurie was a... I forget what he did for an actual living. Maybe he was an ad executive or something, or PR. But during the paperback boom of the 60s and 70s, he was approached by, I want to say Pinnacle Books, to create a uh, bunch of... Uh, I, guess, I guess paperback originals is the way to put it. And in the 70s, all paperback originals had to be spy fiction. And so Dracula became a secret agent man going around doing the bidding of the creepily bossy uh, Professor Harmon. Because Professor Harmon in the first book 
goes and finds Dracula. He's led there by a mysterious immortal cat woman who leads him to Dracula, expecting that when he pulls the stake from Dracula, Dracula will feast on him and come back to life and thus restore her immortality. That's how she stays immortal, is by feeding people to Dracula. She's one of his brides, apparently. However, prof- she is not counted on the fact that Professor Harmon is a brilliant telekinetic and neurosurgeon <laughs> who creates a device that, when implanted into Dracula's heart, has a tiny micro sliver of steak in it. And so, of, of not of delicious steak, of wooden steak. So, so that- Robert Laurie was not a writer of parsimonious imagination. He was not. Is, uh, I think he's still alive, but he certainly was not in 1973 when he did this. So, should Dr. Harmon be interfered with by Dracula or die suddenly, the stake will flash into Dracula's heart and kill him. Or, if Dracula gives him a lot of backtalk, the stake will flash into Dracula's heart and kill him. So, Dr. Harmon bullies Dracula into doing his bidding. And I had previously owned, I believe it's called Dracula's Gold in the series, and found three more of them at Powell's. And I think there are seven or nine altogether. There are nine altogether. And at some point, they begin to become an expensive hobby to buy. <laughs> uh, the, the, I think book one is like 20 bucks in the aftermarket. And I, you know, I enjoy them just fine, but they are not a $20 value, I don't think. So unless I stumble on a bookseller who doesn't have ABE books or doesn't know how to look up what books cost or stumble on pirate treasure, I am probably not going to finish out this series. Or or someone gets the idea that they can make some money on these by putting them on Amazon as ebooks. Right, yeah, and, and I think that's a question of sorting out who, which which failed publishing uh, imprint still has the the rights to this, because um, I bet it's not Robert Laurie, because I don't think Pinnacle was in that kind of giving authors rights business. The copyright is in the name of the editor, to, to give you an in- indication. Uh, so, unless they show up on Kindle or something, yes, it is going to be a uh, a long haul for me to read all nine, but if I can find any of them for reasonable amounts of money, I will happily assemble my Dracula series, possibly the weirdest and most pointless of the occult espionage and occult adventure. For example, at Dracula's Brothers, Dracula fights a crazy geneticist who builds a super bat and uh, sends it to kill. That's exactly what I would assume would happen from the title Dracula's Brothers. Yes, that's precisely what you'd think. You'd think, yeah. well, sure, why not? So so goofy fun is the verdict? I, I would say um, uh, tongue-in-cheek fun, even, more than goofy fun. It's not overtly silly, but certainly it is silly when looked at with even the remotest amount of ironic distance, which I am certain is Robert Laurie's intent. Well, I, I have to say that mixing espionage and Dracula will never work. Never a thing. The Man Who Was Frankenstein by Peter Haining is next on your uh, book pile. Uh, Peter Haining is one of the people who, in an alternate universe, I probably am. He was a uh, prolific, to say the least, nonfiction writer. I believe he did a little bit of fiction himself, but he mostly assembled volumes of ghost stories or assembled volumes of other terrific stories, and then in the interstices would write about UFOs or Loch Ness Monsters or the history of um, uh, of, of the creature in the Black Lagoon or just anything that took his fancy or took his publisher's fancy, one assumes. They would go to and say, Peter Haining, you literally will write anything. Write this. And this is a situation where I suspect he was already writing a bunch of books about Frankenstein, discovered that Mary Shelley had gone to a lecture by Andrew Cross and said, I'm going to write a book about Andrew Cross, and I'm going to lie and say he's the man who was Frankenstein. And we know, for example, that the man who was Frankenstein was an alchemist named Conrad Dippel. But this is 
a story of a electrical experimenter who, at the very least, Mary Shelley did hear speak before writing Frankenstein. So that's our connection there. And he created life using electricity. So good for him, except what he actually created was increased knowledge of how to keep your experimenting area clean. So uh, despite the overreach of its thesis, is this uh, got uh, information in it that you can use for your fell purposes? Well, Andrew Cross's son is... In the Edomverse now, his name is Andrew F. Cross, and he went around Transylvania in 1878, uh, gathering information that uh, wound up in his book, uh, Round About the Carpathians. And so uh, Bill White uh, took my advice of putting Andrew Cross into the uh, uh, Stoker First Blood adventure at the beginning of the Edom cycle. And so certainly Andrew Cross's making life from electricity buddy is part of my scene now. And I'm sure that uh, this is... Like most Peter Haining books, it is a collection of good stories, not particularly rigorously sorted out on the basis of historical veracity. So uh, there will be plenty of things that I can make uh, true and interesting because Peter Haining has covered the interesting half all by himself. Uh, now we come to a, a, a no doubt thin and interstitial volume between subject matters. That's the British forts in the age of Arthur. This is... Uh, number 80 in Osprey Fortress series by Angus Constum. So uh, my first question is, which age of Arthur are we talking about? In the classic mode of British archaeology, which wants funding but does not want to be pinned down, the age of Arthur runs from the Romans leaving, so circa 400, to we are pretty sure that there's not going to be any King Arthur because the Saxons have won, so circa 700. So between 400 and 700 is the age of Arthur uh, if you are trying to get your book published, although you will get a lot of sidelong looks from archaeologists, even now, for daring to assume that King Arthur has an age. But that, if there was a King Arthur, is when he was writing about doing his Arthurian things. So that might as well be the age of Arthur. And what are British forts like then? Uh, well, uh, Angus Constam goes into some detail on the topic, as you might imagine, but there are One basically three sorts of British forts. There are the old hill forts that get um, uh, reoccupied. They were the old British hill, hill forts that got basically knocked down when the Romans conquered the place. The hills stayed around, and in some cases, the forts did too. So they would go back to them. There's Roman fortifications, which got occupied by local militias or local um, constabularies, or occasionally maybe by people who were riding around trying to hide from the Saxons. And the Romans, of course, built on this enormous scale. So one of the problems with reoccupying a Roman fort is you don't have enough men to defend it. I mean, the armies in Arthur's Britain are in the single-digit hundreds, not the multi-multi-thousands that we are used to with the term army. And the third kind is the occasional actual purpose-built fort uh, that seems to have been a holdover, I want to say, from the old Roman build-a-fort-everywhere, and you'll never uh, be wishing you had a fort policy. But every now and again, they would come up across a, a stretch of the world in which there was a bunch of Saxons on one side, and they would usually dig a dike across the land to keep the Saxons, at least make them stumble if they tried to run into your area. And then you would put something on the ridge line on the other side of the dike, and that would be sort of the third kind of fort. But there's some archaeological evidence for all of them. There is less for the form of all of them, which is where the creative mind of Osprey's uh, staff artists comes in. But uh, by and large, it gives you a, a broad panoply of things to play with if you're doing a Pendragon game or a uh, Dark Ages as opposed to Middle Ages influenced uh, F20 game. And 
for that alone, it would be worth it for gamers. And also, it says Arthur right on the cover. I'm not, I don't have to draw you a picture. Now, uh, still on the subject of uh, uh, bodily harm being dealt, still in Britain, but moving uh, up to the 20th century and into the true crime genre, we have a title where the uh, title itself is broad, but the subtitle tells you what you want to know. That's Violence, The Rise and Fall of the Cray Twins by John Pearson. Uh, how much Cray material do you have in your library? I don't have enough Cray material. I strongly suspect that there is a Tim Powers novel at least to be dealt with in the Crays. I have, I think, one really good book about the Crays, and I have some other sort of bouncy back and forth stuff. This sort of rose to the top of the radar because the Crays, of course, their great era is the 60s, and I'm trying to keep my head in the 60s as I complete uh, The Fall of Delta Green. And then also, as I say, you know, you've got a couple of twins, one of them obsessed with horses. Uh, we talked earlier about the gods working through people. That seems to me that there is a Castor and Pollock situation going on here. Your, your old sacred twins situation, which means that, uh, believe it or not, one of them has to kill a dragon. But I'm pretty sure that in the actual historical world, the Krays were both the sacred twins and the dragon. So God knows what I'm going to do about it. But in order to do something, I have to have a book. And that book is... Uh, I believe it's technically called The Profession of Violence, but the cover just says violence. And then in <laughs> very small letters, the rise and fall of the, the profession of violence would be a bit more on point. It would but, be, uh, yes. Perhaps marketing knows what sells. And also, I think my copy has a picture of Tom Hardy because they really know what sells. Um, Tom Hardy did a movie in which he plays both Cray twins pretty recently, um, which I've not seen, but I'm going to at some point. Staying on the uh, true crime tip, but I think probably multiplying the violence by... At least a factor of 10, if not more, is Murder City, Quiet Juarez, and the Global Economy's New Killing Fields by Charles Bowden. When we think about the drug war, we don't necessarily think of uh, all of the uh, incredible death toll that keeping drugs illegal imposes on the world, but this book presumably uh, deals with that head-on. Yeah, um, Ciudad Juarez has a reason to claim to be the murder capital, not just of Mexico, uh, which in itself would be uh, something of an achievement, but possibly of the entire world. There are cities that I think have a higher murder rate, but uh, for example, in 2008, over 1,600 murders took place in a city that is actually not super big. And that is uh, a very impressive number. And the murders are, as you impute, very much drawn by the just stratospheric level of criminal violence that uh, the existence of an enormous multi-billion dollar demand for an illegal commodity on one side of the border and lots of people with nothing to lose and everything to prove on the other side of the border creates. And uh, Bowden, uh, as you as you see from the subtitle, says it's the global economy's new killing fields. I'm pretty sure that it's the global drug wars killing fields. The economy has very little to do with it except providing people spare money with which to buy cocaine. It's not like, you know, for all their other sins, Monsanto is not actually out there murdering people in Ciudad Juarez. They're perfectly happy to be doing other sorts of crazy stuff out in um, uh, the heartland. Yes, it's the global drug economy. Yes, right. But that um, does not sell books into uh, city lights as fast, I suppose. Now we once again uh, shift topics a little to the beginning of our spy section. And there's quite a big spy section here, so... Uh, uh, part of that will lie uh, on the other side of the break, but let's start with A History of the British Secret Service by Richard Deacon. 
Uh, I assume this is a your basic starter volume. This is your basic starter volume, although it's a starter volume that I think the first edition was from 1969. I'm not sure which one I picked up. It's not anything super modern at all. If it was comprehensive when written, it is no longer. Yes, it is no longer. And obviously, lots of stuff has been declassified in the very recent years. So I would actually probably not trust it for anything in the 20th century, because so much of, of what we know now is coming out where the India office got declassified. And it turns out the India office kept notes of stuff that the foreign office, which records have not been declassified, was doing. So that has fueled a lot of this boom in British uh, uh, spy historiography. But uh, Deacon's book is really good on all the stuff leading up to it. And it is comprehensive in that he will look at a period and he will say, I wonder who is in charge of spying in the reign of Charles the first. And no one really mentions that, but he will go and he'll find people and try to at least construct a uh, complete narrative. He has similar books on the Israeli secret service, the Russian secret service, the Chinese secret service. He was your history of secret of secret service guy in the sixties and seventies. And so this is another, uh, another title in his over. So a, a fictionalized version of Richard Deacon would make a great uh, character or a game master character in fall of Delta green. Right. Or, um, uh, and certainly when he turns up mysteriously dead, there are going to be no shortage of people who have motives to whack him out. I think this is my favorite title so far. Ghost by the land being the adventures of IK eight of the British secret service by George Alexander Hill. Yeah, uh, George Alexander Hill is a, uh, was, I should say, um, a contemporary of Riley Ace of Spies and other such, uh, high point heroes of the World War One and immediately post World War One era. These are his memoirs of that service, not his service in the, uh, SOE. He wrote this in 1933, so it only covers the first bit of his, um, spy jobs. So he, he's gonna be really good if Let's say I ever wind up doing anything with T.E. Lawrence and the intrusives and the Cairo gang and our old buddy Blumkin. All of this is going to feed into a um, uh, a spy who, in between spying, worked for Royal Dutch Shell. So he's kind of avant la lettre, your, um, uh, your Oliver Stone bad guy, except he's just writing such a charming memoir that you can't stay mad at him, especially if you feel that people... Should have been messing with the Russians, which indeed he was. So, uh, next we got, thank you, Ken, for supplying some Canadian content. You're always welcome. We come to Camp X, OSS, Intrepid, and the Allies' North American Training Camp for Secret Agents, 1941 to 1945, by uh, David Stafford. And I suspect that this covers some of the same material that is now being fictionalized in the... Uh, CBC show X Company. Tell us about Camp X. Okay, Camp X was on the north shore of Lake Ontario, halfway, for those of you in the area, between Oshawa and Whitby. Okay, that's it's Oshawa. Well, you pronounced Ciudad Juarez wrong, so there you there go. There you go. It, if, you are, if you are outside the borders of, of someone's country, your, your pronunciation is in danger, not for the first or the last time. Well, there we go. We've saved two groups of people. The trouble of writing into correct pronunciation. Yes, although I'm sure something else will happen. Anyway, uh, Camp X was secret camp. It was built by the British government. They didn't bother to tell the Canadian government because that's how the British government ran things. And it was where the OSS 
trained its spies as well as where the British trained a lot of their commandos and whatnot. So, and I assume eventually the Canadians. Um, did the Canadians have a tradition of, of, of being out there in the secret war the way that America and Britain did? Or did you guys just, uh, you know, build 8 million billion planes and, and ships? I, I think World War II would have been the start of that. Yeah. Okay. So this is sort of, you know, the whole story of Camp X, how it gets built, what its layout is, who did what. It's very much an on-the-ground sort of a thing built up from, at that time, recently declassified uh, accounts, memoirs. Uh, he goes to the site and talks about the fact that it's basically a wide spot in the road now and lays out a frame for exciting stories of the SOE that, of course, people have read in eight million other books. But it takes the question of how did you build these guys? Where, If you were a commando, where did you train? And very possibly you trained in a bleak spot north of Lake Ontario, good old Camp X. So there was... Um, there's all manner of, of good information there if you're running a World War II era game or writing one, in fact. Next up, we have the ingenious Mr. Pike, inventor, fugitive spy, and that's written by Henry Hemming. Fans of, of weirdness, which include, I presume, most of our listeners. If you're not, why why have you gotten this far? <laughs> this good for you, man. Just holding out there for the crumbs of actual history. I want history. some more normalness, they shout. Yeah, they shout, where's, where's our high realism? Where's your George Gissing episode? Anyway, um, besides that guy, uh, fans of weirdness will recognize Jeffrey Pike as the inventor of Pikecrete, a synthetic ice that could be turned into an aircraft carrier and used to battle the hated Nazis in World War II. And he was able to impress <laughs> the easily impressed Winston Churchill with this. He invented other things that actually got used and a number of things that never got used. And it was sort of part of the funny weapons division of the of the British uh, war effort. Right. So while Dennis Wheatley was thinking up funny weapons, Pike was claiming to have the plans for them. Exactly. And saying, I'll make up a giant drilling machine. Sure, that sounds fun. And it transpires that he was probably a common turn agent. And how awful is that? That the man who's inventing your giant iceberg aircraft carrier is also working for the Soviets. And the, uh, the, the ingenious Mr. Pike is the sort of story of how you, uh, how you wind up being in charge of building crazy things for the British army while also being a common turn agent and who knew and, and all the rest of that good stuff. And was he actually a common turn agent or is that just an awful thing that the MI5 said about him? So did he show, uh, Stalin his plans for the, uh, iceberg, uh, aircraft carrier? And he said, Hey, why don't you go back to the UK and pitch <laughs> Here's that an idea. to Churchill? Yeah. Um, one, one does not know whether or not the, uh, SS Habakkuk was ever part of Stalin's attempts to get the British to waste their, um, uh, efforts or whether or not Stalin said, yeah, I think that we should all have ice aircraft carriers and the British should pay for the de development of them because <laughs> I've got other stuff to do like fight Hitler. So yeah, the, 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 the interesting thing to me is that Pike turns out to have been working for the common turn, which is crazy. Uh, I had only known him as a madman who wanted to build tanks that traveled on, on uh, tunnel machines. But that's just his cover story. That's just what he was doing by day. By night, he's out there working for the Soviet Union. This will seem plausible, yes, he said. Yes, yes, And so, I think that, you know, you, you get a guy, you get you a, get you a crazy person who can do both, I guess. That's been my motto throughout my whole career. And the ingenious Mr. Pike is only the latest possible Example. Well, I think at this point, uh, we all need a, a, a brief, uh, a, a glimmer of a break, at least. And uh, so we've been mentioning 
Delta Green enough that uh, we should maybe have a commercial for it and then come right back with the, believe it or not, second half of Ken's Book Pile. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This players-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. And we're back, and we're not even uh, through the stack of spy books. Ken, did you leave the... Powell's uh, espionage shelf uh, essentially denuded and barren of, of spy books? What I did um, uh, was actually this time, often I will start in history or I will start in uh, the occult or I will start in science fiction or I will start in any number of other places. This time I thought I will start in the espionage section and work my way out from there. And that is what I did. And uh, yes, I did leave it denuded. Um, I, I, I may have I may have over overgrazed and I will come back and find that only goats are on the land where once there was a spy section. Well, uh, the next one we have on our pile here is Secret Agent's Handbook. Brackets. Descriptive Catalog of Special Devices and Supplies, comma, SOE, end bracket. Yeah, what this is, is apparently the SOE, the Special Operation Executive that is out there setting Europe ablaze and uh, sneaking around and uh, smuggling guns to the underground and putting up radios in the attics of quaint European towns that are about to be blown to flinders by the U.S. Air Force or U.S. Army Air Corps, I should say. They had a central purchasing area where they would go and they would get all their spy stuff, or at least they had a catalog of spy stuff that they could look at, or maybe their bosses could look at and say, you shall be taking the rat that is full of plastic explosive, and you shall be taking the killing pen, and you shall be... And so this is sort of the Q manual for the actual Q manual. And these are the guys who, uh, who armed and, 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 uh, and weirdly so the SOE. This is the book that they would go back to to find out if it was in stock. It has been pretty much straight up reprinted. Uh, there's not even a pretense of a critical, uh, structure to it. But if you're saying, what can my, uh, spy have in 1945 Europe? This is the book of what he can have. So it is absolutely, I mean, it's, it's fully illustrated. It's just the reprinted manual that the, uh, military, I think it's called M08 or M01. I forget what it is. It's some pretend little branch of the military that doesn't exist. And it's very, very hard to find information about because it existed only to print this book pretty much. And that's, that's who has it. And that's what it is. So in the, the role playing biz, we refer to, uh, supplements full of gear as toy books. I guess this is a real-life toy book. This is the the ultimate real-life toy book. It's all you could ask for. Uh, next up, we have FDR's 12 Apostles, the spies who paved the way for the invasion of North Africa, written by Hal Vaughn. Um, people will 
sometimes ask, how come it was so easy to invade Vichy North Africa? And the answer is not we were fighting the French. Uh, the answer is we had people who were dropped in, in many cases before the war even started uh, under diplomatic cover, going around convincing local garrison commanders to just surrender rather than try and fight the oncoming American onslaught. So these are the 12 guys that uh, FB FDR sent in to spy out the land, as they say, and turn uh, North Africa into a soft, the softest of soft targets before we came in guns blazing with Operation Torch. And that, of course, led to the kind of overconfidence that wound up with us getting our face handed to us at Kasserine Pass, but it also meant we didn't have to fight our way all the way across Algeria. So that whole area becomes hugely spy interesting. I think the OSS sets up an office in Algiers during the war. It's got that whole Barbary Coast uh, history going back to it. Basically, if you're going to do something with uh, World War II that you want to keep 8 million tanks away from, North Africa is a great place to do it. And FDR's 12 Apostles gives you your player characters, very possibly. Uh, author Peter Tompkins brings us The Murder of Admiral Darlin, and that raises three questions. Who was Admiral Darlin? Who murdered him? And why? Admiral Darlin was the um, commander-in-chief of the French Navy. When France surrendered, he became the commander-in-chief of the Vichy French Navy. Um, he was a very, very highly placed Vichy guy. He was one of the people that those 12 apostles had spied out the land around. And so when we landed, he immediately turned over North Africa to us in exchange for getting to command the free French forces in North Africa. Somebody thought that that was a terrible idea uh, to be giving this opportunistic weasel the uh, ability to run uh, the North African free French. So he was shot <laughs> by that somebody. And the somebody specifically was Bonnier de la Chapelle or Fernand Bonnier de la Chapelle, who claimed at least to have been working on behalf of the Count of Paris, the Bourbon pretender to the French throne. Now, I don't know how familiar our audience is with World War II, but <laughs> the Bourbon pretender really didn't have a dog in that fight. <laughs> so everyone has assumed that it was actually the British and or the Americans that said, hey, you're crazy. Go shoot Admiral Darlan and we'll, I don't know, make you king or something. We don't care. Um, and that is indeed probably what happened, but there is no proof because that was back when we could kill people without anyone finding out. And, uh, so as a result, there are now whole books on the topic of what the heck is up with that. But, you know, once you've got mysterious monarchists wandering around ass assassinating fascist admirals, as far as I'm concerned, that is a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Next, we come to the, uh, suggestive and colorful title, The Race for Hitler's X-Planes. Britain's 1945 mission to capture secret Luftwaffe technology by John Christopher. Ken, my suspicion is that X-Planes aren't as cool as the title makes them seem. Am I wrong? No, the X-Planes are fine. They're very awesome. There are many, many wonderful jets, for example. There is the um, uh, the, the, uh, the various trimotors and rocket aircraft and whatnot. Some of them were, in fact, captured by a British unit and brought back to Britain to keep Britain's uh, lead in jet technology inviolable. Uh, and some of them were captured by the Americans to make sure that Britain's lead in jet technology did not remain inviolable. And some of them just vanished in the confusion. This is the book about the British guys that went in and did it. We often hear about the American 
uh, Operation per- Paperclip and Operation Peppermint. This was the British guys who go in and uh, try and hunt down experimental aircraft. And of course, everyone listening is shouting, Nazi saucers, Nazi saucers. John Christopher, much to his credit, does not say anything about Nazi saucers. But if you're building a secret British unit that its job is to get the Nazi saucers, these are the guys who actually would be on it. And so therefore it's valuable for even the craziest of things, even though it's, um, despite its exciting X-plane title, a work of sober aeronautical history with a, a dash of, uh, how to do it military in it as well. Well, I, um, I apologize for traducing Perfectly fine X-planes. Yes, they are perfectly fine, but they are not Nazi saucers. Right. That we know of. Yes. Next up, we have Spy Wars, Moles, Mysteries, and Deadly Games by Tenant H. Bagley. That sounds pretty broad, but a premonition of the future tells me that it's not about uh, a lot of moles necessarily, as it's about one very specific mole, uh, Ken, who was... Colonel Yuri Ivanovich Nosenko, who I believe we have discussed previously on this show as uh, one of the dueling defectors in the early 1960s, himself and Golitsyn, uh, telling opposite stories about whether or not there was a um, highly placed mole in the CIA and whether or not uh, the KGB had anything to do with the Kennedy assassination. And, and which side of those questions did Nosenko come down on? Nosenko came down on the, there is no mole, and... The KGB had nothing to do with the assassination. And according to Tenant H. Bagley, uh, was he lying? According to Tenant H. Bagley, he now says that Nosenko is a plant, which uh, the CIA now officially says, no, he was not a plant, because if they said he was a plant, they would have to say, oh, we missed the part where our enemies killed our president and also had a mole in our ranks. And also, Angleton was right, which they really don't want to say institutionally for a lot of reasons. This does not mean they're wrong. What it does mean is that Tenant Bagley has a dog in this fight and that the people who disagree with the CIA view of a lot of things will tend to argue that uh, Nosenko was a was a plant and a fake defector, even though one of the things they disagree with the CIA about is that they tortured uh, Nosenko to make him admit to being a plant and a fake defector. So it's all very confusing, right. and Bagley is talking about the um, uh, the issue at great, and one might even say extreme lengths, but uh, it is such a crucial question for the sort of, you know, black or white nature of uh, CIA history and Soviet espionage that you kind of need a, a key book about the Nosenko affair, and since Tenant Bagley was Nosenko's case handler, that seems to perhaps be that book. So he has uh, knowledge, but also uh, motivation to believe a certain way. Exactly. Finally, in our espionage section, we come to, uh, we started with a, uh, a broad starter package, and we end with a, a contemporary overview, looks like, the new spy masters inside the modern world of espionage from the Cold War to the War on Terror by Stephen Gray. Yes, this is a book that basically attempts to understand the changes in intelligence uh, back in the old days you had a, uh, a larger human intelligence role uh, less technical means and you had a foe who was much like yourself they were european and spoke a indo-european language that you could easily infiltrate and in many ways work within 
uh, in, in, you know, your, in many cases, your college professors believed what your foes believed. Now, not so much. It's much harder, apparently, to sneak into a tribal group in the Pakistani uplands than it is to sneak into a, uh, a Soviet-influenced uh, uh, front group in Europe somewhere. So the uh, question of to what extent is the nature of the war driving the new intelligence methodology, and to what extent is the fact that we suddenly have all of this great technical means driving the abandonment of human intelligence more out of sloth than out of the um, uh, uh, change conditions on the ground. That, I think, is the fraught question that Stephen Gray examines with the new spy masters. Uh, in in between lots and lots of discussing of uh, various spy stories and, and hero spy stories uh, from the last 25-odd uh, years. Although I suspect that Gray is um, not as fond of the CIA now as uh, as he might be. In the the world of espionage books, we have a lot of uh, questions. There's some sort of fantastical tales. The truth is not so easy to find. So let's move to a section uh, of sober uh, reflection and true historiography with Richard J. Dewhurst's The Ancient Giants Who Ruled America, The Missing Skeletons, and The Great Smithsonian Cover-Up. Ken, is there a, a... Is the Smithsonian hiding the skeletons of giants from us? Yes. Yes, it is. I can say that incontrovertibly, because no one will bother to controvert me if you say it. No one will controvert you if you write a giant book about it. <laughs> I have been aware of the Great Smithsonian Cover-Up ever since examining the Grand Canyon for a suppressed transmission a while ago. And finally... Finally, someone has blown the lid off it in a book whose uh, back cover text goes almost to the gutter. It's so excited. <laughs> um, there are the telltale sign tells the tale yet again. There are um, uh, there are two blurbs on the top, and they are blurbs from a guy named Robert Hieronymus and from a guy named Zaviant Hayes. And if that doesn't tell you that this is a book to be conjured with. There's nothing else that I can do, although also there is an awesome skeleton of a giant with a oldie-timey man looking at it on the cover. And uh, big type in inside, lots of sketches and reprinted articles from the 1890s when journalism, and it's hard to believe, but in those days, people just wrote wherever they wanted to and hoped no one checked them. <laughs> Nowadays, obviously, journalism is entirely different. But uh, this is sort of a one-stop shop for all your ancient giant uh, cover-ups, of which there were many. And they were done by the Smithsonian. Well, they're giants. You got to cover them up. Yeah, really you really thoroughly. have to cover them. Once you start, you can't stop. So, so any of your Lemurian colonies in America, any of your other, uh, your, uh, your proof of Genesis, all of that stuff, that's all in there. It's all going to be good. Um, and it gives, I like, if I may, uh, wax patriotic. I like our homegrown crazy legends. I'm as a big a fan as anyone of your Loch Nesses and your, and your, um, uh, cults of ISIS and whatnot. But I like it when Americans step up and make up nonsense too. And so uh, I'm glad to be a proponent of the ancient giant cover-up theory. And uh, why is the Smithsonian covering up ancient giants? Because they'd have to reorganize everything. Oh, well, that makes total sense. Also, they're a bunch of Darwinists, I think. I think they're in league with Darwin. Oh, I see. Okay, this is this is all coming. It's into too focus big. For it's me, too but... big, Robin. We 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 yeah. we are only looking at the surface. Maybe the the Titan elbow of this giant. Right. Well, we better not go any further, lest our, our podcast be suppressed. So let's. Uh, move on to the even more sober realms of Secret Journey to Planet Serpo by Len Caston. When you journey to Planet Serpo, what do you find? Uh, I, aliens. That's that's where they live. That's where the, the, the um, aliens live there. 
on secret on uh, planet Serpo in 1965, I believe is when we set up the Serpo project. So what are these, are these like your Aryan space brothers? Are they like uh, grays? What kind of aliens? These are your grays. These are your grays. This is the, the grays showed up. They agreed to transmit a bunch of humans to planet Serpo, uh, where they, where they lived. And, uh, I think 12, uh, astronauts went out to planet Serpo and some of them didn't come back. It's all very mysterious. So this is where Richard Dreyfus. This is where Richard Dreyfus. He gets taken to Serpo. Yes. The Serpo story is an, in, you know, in the sad and ugly truth. The Serpo story, I think, is yet another one of those things that, um, uh, Richard Doty made up, uh, to see who would bite. <laughs> and remind people who Richard Doty is. Richard Doty was. is the Air Force, um, OSI guy who played a bunch of ufologists for suckers. Under the rubric of counterintelligence to prevent them finding out about Soviet aircraft test programs, but under the real guise of it was hilarious, I think. And so Planet Serpo is one of those things that I have not dug all the way down into the historiography. That's part of why I have books on the topic. It, but I think it was part of the Doty dump was this Serpo story. And sure enough, uh, someone in this case, Len Caston has run with it and, uh, discusses the whole question of Planet Serpo, what happened to our missing guys? What's going on on Serpo? Was it was it actually real Serpo, or did they go to pretend Serpo? Or the pseudo-Serpo? You will be interested to know that the uh, UFO guys, the, the Ebens, as they are called in this book, presented the U.S. government with the Yellow Book, Ooh. Ooh. which is the complete history of the universe in holographic form. Oh, no wonder that drives you crazy. No wonder it drives you crazy. Well, I think it's, it's one of those it's things. It's probably like a PAL hologram and you've only got NTSC. It's, it's, uh, yeah, that, first of all, it's in, it's in the wrong format. Second of all, you've got to mess with your, um, uh, with your version control to get the, um, uh, smoothing of, uh, artifacts taken out of it. And third of all, it just falls open to the Carcosa page all the time. Because someone was reading that part on yeah. the saucer Carcosa on the way over. must be real n- near to Serpo. I, mean, it, I would think Carcosa and Serpo are practically neighbors in a way. Uh, next up, we come to the Brookhaven Connection by Wade Gordon. This is part of the larger mythology of the Montauk Project. Uh, you will perhaps... I don't think we've talked about the Montauk Project specifically, although we've talked about it in the context of other books that I've got. Um but the Montauk Project, by and large, is the uh, Philadelphia Experiment, mind control, secret UFO, going into the uh, upside down stuff that was being done out at the Montauk Naval Station, Montauk Air Base at the end of Long Island. Over the course of the time when we were doing that, Montauk shut down, I think, in the late 80s or early 90s and is now just a nothing. But at that point, it is your one-stop shop for all the great conspiracy theories. They're all out there. There is a series of books by Peter Moon and... Alan Nichols, someone Nichols, uh, talking about the Montauk project and going ever increasingly deep into people who are suddenly remembering that they too were part of a mind control project run out of Long Island and coming in. And this book ties into the Montauk project with what the Brookhaven National Laboratories are doing, uh, in connection with it. And, uh, what they're doing with it is what you'd think they were doing. They, um, uh, are running Majestic 12 because Brookhaven, uh, heads were part of the original Majestic 12. Uh, memo. And so once you get Brookhaven on Majestic 12, you say, how does that tie into Montauk? This book is the how that ties into Montauk. This is again, very much the narrative of someone who uh, says that they were brought into Majestic 12 and they ran that part of the, uh, the Brookhaven's part of the, of the Montauk project. It, it's not uh, particularly well organized, but it does 
go and specifically uh, talk about Brookhaven, which is something that I have not seen a lot of various UFO books, even the Montauk guys do. And since Brookhaven is a real thing and a vital thing in the creation of the Department of Energy, among other things, um, it's actually kind of interesting on its own right. And uh, finally, we come up to uh, what looks like a potpourri from a stalwart of your Fortean literature, uh, Joe Nickel's The Mystery Chronicles, More Real-Life X-Files. Uh, Joe Nickel <laughs> began, I think, as a private detective specializing in forensic document study. And someone said, probably, hey, here's the Lost Dutchman treasure map, or here's uh, my memo of having been run by Majestic 12 at Brookhaven National Laboratories. And he said, no, this was written on a big chief pad. What is wrong with you? <laughs> Joe Nickel is a skeptic uh, who is a trained investigator, and he goes out and he picks these famous elliptonic instances and Fortean cases and says... No, this is not what happened. This is not even what was reported as happening. You have <laughs> fallen for sloppy uh, paperback originals yet again, Ken Height. And <laughs> I don't think he specifically says Ken Height. But well, the, the, the Ken Height is, is implied. It's implied. It's after the ellipses. Uh, he's got a number of, of uh, investigative books. They're all worth reading. He is not as thorough an investigator as someone like Mike Dash, but almost no one is as thorough an investigator as someone like Mike Dash. And certainly for your... No, it is not either. First cut. He is a excellent guy to provide it. Yes. Well, once he gets to the, hey, this is nonsense, he kind of backs off. Well, I mean, he, 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 he does attempt to figure out if there is any fire creating all this smoke. And if it is, as it never is, uh, if it is not cryptids or if it is not aliens or if it is not whatever, what might it have been type stuff. So there's a little bit of that, but it's basically just, you know, how to investigate a weird happening over and over and over and over and over again. And so that alone, I think, is is worth it, uh, not just for skeptical-minded people, but for fans of Gumshoe to look at and say, oh, this is how you would actually investigate a weird UFO sighting or something you turn up in a newspaper from 100 years ago. And that provides you with valuable paths to follow. Yes. How to create a veil out. Yes. Right. Yes. He's, he is obviously a, um, uh, you know, the, the Harvey Keitel of, uh, the Ordo Veritatis who's brought in to clean the situation at the, at the, at the end, no matter what. Uh, well, now that we're imagining, uh, Harvey Keitel, uh, driving around, uh, uh, North America, uh, hiding, uh, mystical and monstrous truths, I think it's, uh, that's our cue to, uh, stop talking about, uh, monstrous, uh, truths for at least a week. So we'll be back next week, folks. Uh, and until then, uh, keep your uh, friends close and your cryptids closer. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Join such mythically resonant patrons as... Samuel Holly, Jack Hewlett. Steve Sigety, Jacob Ansari. And Shane McLean. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs>